From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We've all had to bounce back from something. Maybe it's drugs, alcohol, depression, grief. Fundamentally, that's what CPR's new podcast, Back From Broken, is about. The first episode features New Orleans singer-songwriter Anders Osborne. People think addiction is just the use. The use is a symptom. The addiction is how it affects everybody else. The host of Back From Broken is Vic Vela, who proudly introduces himself as a recovering drug addict. He's with us today, first episode in hand, which leads us through Osborne's lowest lows getting high and his highest highs in sobriety. I felt accountable for doing a good job playing music, and I better be sober. Vic will lift the curtain on this new podcast, what inspired it, and how he stays sober. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If you tune in weekends, this voice will no doubt be familiar. And coming up this hour on Weekend Edition, it's the Tennessee Turkey Calling Contest. I've never called a turkey in my life, but I've been called a turkey before. How do they let me on the radio? Cooler temperatures across the state today. Highs in the CPR's Vic Vela hosts Weekend Edition. Before that, he covered the state capitol for us. And Vic says his CPR gig is the first job he's ever had sober. And it's in the clarity of sobriety that he had an idea, a podcast about recovery in all its forms. Season one of Back From Broken debuts today, and we're going to share the first episode in a special Colorado Matters. Vic will take us behind the scenes. Vic Vela, welcome to the program. Ryan, it's been a while since I've been on CM, and we just like work right next to each other. That's true. Yeah. It's lovely to see you and on such an exciting day for you. I'm curious how long you've been sober mm-hmm. and if, if that length of time is meaningful to you. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I will forget, forget sometimes what my actual birthday is, uh, but I will never forget what my sobriety day is. Oh. Um, Jan- which, by the way, for the folks listening at home, it's January 25th, uh, 2015, if you ever want to get me a gift on that day. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's uh, a date that will forever live in my heart, but it's a date that I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't take things. It's that old cliche of, of one day at a time. One day Taking at a time. things one day at a time got me five years. Do you believe in the concept of rock bottom? Mm-hmm. And if so, what was it for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I get asked a lot, you know, uh, why did you finally surrender? What 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 was it about uh, uh, your experience that, that finally uh, made you uh, get some help? And for me, you know, for a lot of people, boy, they'll sometimes end up behind bars or they may, God forbid, kill someone, right? And I guarantee, or themselves, and I guarantee you, with my addiction, that's the direction I was headed. Um, I was a heavy-duty uh, cocaine user for many, many years, and uh, uh, and then uh, I couldn't physically snort the drug anymore because I did so much damage to my nose, and that's when I started smoking crack and meth. Um, it was a long, fift- good 15 years of daily drug use. Mm-hmm. And so my answer when people ask, what was my rock bottom? Frankly, it was just being sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was exhausted. Living that way is an exhausting way to live. And I can't really, I can only do my best to paint a picture for you. Imagine waking up every day full of regret from what you did the night before, every single day. Imagine waking up every day 
in constant damage control, trying to fix what you did the night before. Boy, well, geez, now am I, how am I going to pay the rent now? I just blew hundreds of dollars on cocaine, and now I got to borrow from a friend or a family member. And then you got to make up stories uh, why you're borrowing the money because you can't admit that it was on drugs, of course, right? So, and then all of a sudden your lies and your stories get all tangled up. And pretty soon I would tell you one thing, I would tell another person the next, a different mm. thing, and I wouldn't even know what the truth was. There was so much maintenance, so much mopping. It's exhausting. Before we listen to this first episode, I want to ask you about a term you use, Vic Vela, and that term is clean, Mm -hmm. as in you're clean. You're not on drugs anymore. Mm -hmm. In the past, some listeners have balked at that term when they've heard it on Colorado Matters. Why do you use the term clean in just a few seconds? Well, and and a nod to your your listeners, um, there's a movement out there to destigmatize addiction and mental health issues, and I'm on board with a lot of that. Like... And they come at it with really good intentions. I agree that we should say substance use disorder instead of substance abuse, right? And we shouldn't say things like commit suicide, like you're committing a bank robbery or something, right? But I use terms like clean all the time. And I proudly refer to myself as a recovering drug addict. You see, addiction is not a Disney movie. And we can't sugarcoat this stuff. This is life or death. And I constantly need to remind myself of what the consequences are if I don't stay away from cocaine. There's no nice, polite way to put it. I can't use flowery language when talking about my addiction. I cannot for a moment trick myself into thinking that because I'm using softer language, that maybe I can get away with using drugs just once. Mm. And I wear the term recovering drug addict as a badge of honor. And... I wear that term to hold myself accountable, to remind myself that I am addicted to cocaine, I am a cocaine addict, and that if I use cocaine, I will die. And uh, I had to remind myself of that because if, if I don't, I'll destroy myself and everything around me, and that cannot happen ever again. Well, Vic, you'll be with us throughout the show to talk more about this project. Let's listen to Back From Broken. How much were drugs and alcohol crucial to the New Orleans scene? Drinking is a big part of it. And here in New Orleans, we have a very educated way of drinking all day. <laughs> so, so what you do is you start, even if it's a brunch or a lunch, and the luncheon goes on all day, and then a little extra, a little this, and you meet for drinks on the front porch. There's a culture around the drinking. So you're supposed to drink civilized for many, many hours. This is Back From Broken, from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. The guy you just heard from is Anders Osborne, and he's going to tell you a wild, drug-fueled story that, frankly, I can relate to a lot. My friends used to call me the pharmacist because everywhere I went, I had a ton of drugs on me. I'd snort coke or smoke crack in the car, then head to work like it was just totally normal behavior. Then I couldn't wait to do more drugs when I got home. I live in Colorado, a state with high rates of addiction, depression, and suicide. These things affect everyone. I'm really tired of looking at my Facebook feed and seeing news of another friend who overdosed or died by suicide. 
So this podcast is about comeback stories, not just from drugs, but that's where we're going to start. I've been clean for five years now, and when I hear songs like this about a person overcoming addiction, I pay attention. And my feet are sinking and my mind is soft. All I can think about is all I lost. Yeah, I got lucky and I got out, but to stay sober is hard to think about. Anders Osborne is a songwriter and one of the country's best-known blues guitarists. On stages all over the world, he leans into the music. But I'm learning, it's okay. In a way, Anders Osborne has a typical story about a talented musician who got tangled up in drugs and alcohol. But his story isn't typical at all. He was born in Sweden, and you could still hear the slightest trace of an accent. But he moved to New Orleans when he was young. And let's just say the city and its music culture and its drinking culture had a huge effect on him. What was your personal experience like with drugs and booze around that time when you when you were just kind of getting started? Uh, I mean, a lot of drinking, um, not a bunch of cocaine, but there was cocaine. And then there were prescription drugs, a lot of weed, mushrooms, drive a little acid and... And and if you needed to, you would do some cocaine with the acid, and mm-hmm. to because you didn't want it to last only eleven hours. You needed another four. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't short. Don't shortchange that buzz. No. I'm seriously. Yeah. So that was basically what we all did, and then a little heroin shows up, and you smoke a little bit of that. But it was pretty innocent in the beginning. To regular normal people who, who uh, that doesn't sound too innocent, right? But I understand what you're saying because yeah. I remember when I was doing all those drugs that you mentioned, they weren't really a problem for me because I, like any drug addict, I remember a time in my life when drugs were fun and they weren't causing problems. Yeah, they were working for a long time. They really did add uh, not just the feeling you were looking for, but the dimension you were looking for. Mm. You wanted the connection between the architecture, the trees, and the other people, and the weird dressing up. <laughs> so all that stuff, it all goes hand in hand. I think it's a, literally what they call a drug culture. Mm-hmm. The one thing that happened, the more the career took off, and the more the the pressures kind of, uh, I don't know, they just, they stepped up. Anders' career began to take off in a serious way at this time. He was touring more, and other artists recorded his songs, like Keb Moe, Johnny Lang, and Tim McGraw, who recorded this song that Anders co-wrote. And all I want to do is let it be and be with you and watch the wind blow by. And all I want to see is you and me go on forever like the clear blue sky. That track landed on the top of the country charts, which meant Anders had more income to spend on booze and drugs. The roots of addiction often start well before you begin using. Anders points to some difficult times in his childhood. His parents divorced when he was young, and Anders often felt like he didn't fit in with other kids. He says those experiences fueled his dependency on alcohol and other drugs. 
and that dependency started to get more serious. He remembers one particular binge that lasted five days. I had just met my wife now, and we've been out for many days. And I woke up about five days into this run, and um, and I had this kind of like a pair of karate pants, or or you know. So you're so you're getting drunk all weekend wearing karate pants. Who hasn't done that? Yeah, they're karate <laughs> pants, and I had no underwear underneath, and. So I asked my girlfriend at the time, and I said, did I wear this? She said, yep, the whole weekend. This is, we rode cabs, we saw some of your friends, we scored, we did all kinds of stuff, and that's what you were wearing. Oh, man. Proud and loud. Proud and, (laughs) and this was for five days. Yeah, five days. And then I also asked, because I couldn't find my guitar, my electric guitar, which was kind of a, a big deal for me. It's a 1968 Black Strat. That and the 62 Strat, both of them were gone. Wow. Those guitars really meant a lot to me. And to not know where they are or where they were and how they got lost or anything, that was my first kind of indication that something's not right. What do you remember about coming out of that blackout? Uh, I remember... I don't know. It's not despair, but to not be able to grasp at all what has happened for five days and to have no idea what I said or what I did. And then all I know is I walked around naked for five days, like in public. I lost the two things that I value the most professionally. And I have no idea what happened. None. It made me, for the first time, I think, reflect over how many times stuff like that had happened. I mean, just an endless amount of film started to play in my head. Mm, so the tape is playing, the greatest hits, right? Yeah, the greatest And it started, and I couldn't really see the whole tape at that time. It came later. But it started to play, and I, I really freaked out, and I said, I have to stop. I, I really can't go on like this. This is a problem. I'm not like everybody else. And I think that dawned on me that time, for real. So I, I try to, you know, try to quit. I find this part of Andrew's story really amazing. He stayed sober for months, and he went through a lot of self-reflection. Andrew says he stopped playing live because he realized he was struggling with getting up in front of crowds and performing. The drugs had helped make that a lot easier for him. And without them, he stepped away from live shows for a while. He says he stayed home, got into painting, and smoked a lot of cigarettes. Did you try to go through recovery at this time, or was it cold turkey? No, this was uh, cold turkey and white knuckling, and yeah. like I said, isolation was pretty total. I mean, I didn't go anywhere, do anything. I just stayed home and painted the whole time. Anders' life was exciting on a personal level. He'd gotten married and had two kids. But he and his wife also had a miscarriage. And then while he was still trying to stay sober, his mother passed away. I think the death of my mother was, that was probably the catalyst. Pretty much within a few months of that, I started to go to wine tastings. And I I remember I told my wife, no, 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 it's going to be fine. I'm spitting out. 
I'm not swallowing <laughs> anything. I just always, I've always been super into wines. You know that. And she goes, no, I don't know that. I'm like, oh, you're stupid. I've always been into wines. I've collected wines before I met you. Wine was like my big thing. You uh -huh. didn't know that? Oh, my God. I love wines. Anyway, I'm not drinking it. I'm just tasting it and spitting it out. It's wonderful. So I did that every Thursday. I lasted three, four months without swallowing. That's pretty remarkable, actually. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, Jesus, talk about torturing yourself. Just swallow that damn thing. So what I did was I remember it very vividly. We're sitting around this table and the wines and the pinots and all this stuff, and everybody's like, oh, my God, you're so talented. I can't believe your palate. It's incredible. I go, I don't know. I know. I've been doing it forever. It's just, it's natural to me. I should be a winemaker in France, I think. That is my calling. And they're like, yeah, totally. You could do it. And then, boom, I swallowed. And I never forget that. That's amazing. The whole chest opens up, your brain, everything, all the signals start shooting like crazy. And you just go, I'm back. And you just know it. You know it's happening. You were playing with fire for so long. It's like, you know, the old saying in recovery, you hang out at a barber shop long enough, you're going to get your hair cut. And that's exactly you what happened with it. you. I got a trim. So, <laughs> so as I swallowed that, it was on. I mean, it was on, on, on. And then from that point on, within that next week, a friend of mine is, I hear in the stall next to me, like, and I go, hand me some of that. And he, he's like, no, man. I said, shut up. I've been back doing it for months. Don't worry about it. Give it to me. So he does. And that's it. I stayed out all night, but the next morning I'm scoring again. And it was on seven or eight years of absolute raging hell. Okay, well, let's talk about that. When you say it was on, what did your drinking look like at that time? What were you consuming? How much? How often? I guess what was a day in the life of Anders Osborne during this really crazy period? Uh, I don't know, four, five bottles of wine, a case of beer, fifth of something, pretty daily, um, one or two eight balls. I cook half of it. Anders, that's ridiculous. That's in a ridiculous amount of booze and drugs. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And it, but what I loved the most, which is something that really helped my recovery, was to discover that I'm an alcoholic. And that simplifies things so perfectly for me. It just brings it down to one thing, which is if you don't drink, none of the other stuff shows up. And that's me. That's how it works for me. So you were just doing this all the time, but you were married with kids. What, how was your substance abuse affecting your, your family? I had a little day bed out on the back porch, and so I was isolating out there, and I wasn't allowed to come in the house. Oh, so your and, wife, had, yeah. had she kicked you out of the house at that point? Yeah, it, not right away. We, we struggled for several years. You know, we used to go out together. We used to go have dinners and, and hang out with friends and go see shows go to strip bars, and, you know, we had a great time. We were very classy. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, I think after a few years of that extreme back porch stuff, you know, and I kept painting out there, and there was paint on everything and all my clothes, and finally she said, you can't be inside anymore, and the kids, 
this is really starting to affect everything. So she put me outside, and then after, you know, I, God bless her, she put up with that for a couple of years. She then kicked me out totally, and I wasn't allowed to live at the house. So I ended up with a friend who then also kicked me out, and then I lived on a park bench out here in the park. And a lot of times people think addiction is just the use. The use is a symptom. The addiction is how it affects everybody else. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that really is the impactful part of being addicted to sex, drugs, alcohol, work, anything. If you are obsessing over anything, and in my case, I couldn't pick up the kids, father-daughter dance, I'll be, you know, I was on day four, I've been up forever, I had to go keep smoking up in their little kid stall, and I mean, it was just horrific. So you were getting high at your kid's elementary school during a father-daughter dance. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's devastating when you start, you know, getting the, t- like we said, the tape starts playing back, and then it, like the addiction part is, has nothing to do with having a drink with your friends. Well, and that's the, that's the crazy thing. I can, I can relate. When my brother got married, I, I had to stay alert for it. So I did cocaine in the, in the church bathroom before I went and was part of his wedding crew. It just made perfect sense to me to do that. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. It's perfect. <laughs> and, and were you still performing around this time? The last two years was very difficult. I just couldn't make it. The last two years, I couldn't make it. I missed all the flights. I never made the gigs if it was out of town. Then nobody could work with me. I mean, managers dropped me and record labels and everybody. But there's always that one or two friend or person or or associate that goes, we got to do something. It's often really painful to look back on memories like this. Anders captured that feeling, that sense of desperation, in a song later on that he called Coming Down. This ain't a relapse, it's more like a bounce. Way up in heaven and back to the ground. Keep your arms wide open, baby. Yeah, I'm coming down. After, you know, being up for days or, you know, using for a period, as I was coming down, I realized that, you know, there was no one there. There was no one to catch me. It's just me every time. So I wrote a tune about it. So keep your arms right open, baby. I'm coming down. But Anders wasn't alone. In fact, some of his peers in the New Orleans music scene showed up for him when he was most desperate. Some of his closest friends, including legends like Ivan Neville and Dr. John, got Anders a bed in a Los Angeles treatment facility. All Anders had to do was get there from New Orleans. I mean, these guys all had your back, and, and so now you're on a they flight, did, they, you're, you're on your way to rehab. Talk me through the early days of that. Were you ready? Were you finally ready? No, not even close. <laughs> it was bad, and, and, you know, the alcohol detox was horrific this time. It was brutal. I couldn't walk. I couldn't oh, stand up. They had to carry me to the meetings, and, yeah. and I had never had that before, where it was... Alcohol was giving me that much grief. They called my manager and they said, there's nothing we can do for him. He's got such severe wet brain. He hasn't said one single thing we understand. I don't think we can save him. He needs very different help. This is a rehab center saying this to your manager. I mean, they're used to really bad cases. 
Yeah, I was, I was a mess. Anders slowly started to regain some focus. He remembers the staff being tough on him at first, but then they started becoming kinder and more encouraging. But rehab can be chaotic. One of his roommates jumped out of the window of their room each night to go find drugs. That guy didn't last very long in rehab, but Anders did. And he started to wrestle with some missed opportunities from the past. At what point did you have the aha moment? Yeah, you, you were obviously, you know, not w- ready or willing to get sober. You're seeing guys crawl out of your window. Uh, when did you finally have the moment where, okay, everything fell into place? I think close to a month into it, um, I was sitting in that room and I don't know, I think I was clean for the first time, no drinking or nothing. And uh, that tape started playing again. And uh, this time it was, uh, it was like everything from the age of 12 and 13. It just started playing, just kept playing and playing and it wouldn't stop. And I started, I don't know, I started getting really kind of upset and it was weird, you know. And so you see everything I've done. I I climbed Mount Olympus and uh, I traveled all over the, you know, Europe and Africa. And all I could remember in my head was how drunk I was and how high I was everywhere, every single place I went to. I got to Mount Olympus. We got to the summit. And the next morning, we're supposed to go to the peak. And I couldn't because I was too hungover. So I missed it. So I walked all the way up there for two and a half days. And then I sat at the summit being hungover. And then I walked down. Just insane. Wow. And then, you know, the meeting of my wife and all the breakups. And then the kids, I left them, you know. I missed Christmases and birthdays. And I wasn't there. Instead, I was in the crack house somewhere, and when that starts playing in your head, and I think what happened was, you know, I, you kind of see clearly who you really are. Yep, it's, um, you okay? Yeah. Anders, I actually think, you know, go ahead, take a minute. If you, get, if you need to use the restroom or, or get a glass of water, by all means. Okay, I'll be right back. Stick around. After this, Anders finds a way to get clean, piece his life back together, and change the lives of a lot of other musicians with similar struggles. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org.
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and a special show today as we listen to the premiere of CPR's new podcast, Back from Broken. My colleague Vic Vela is the host, and he's in our studio. Um, Vic, this first episode features New Orleans musician Anders Osborne, and he's going to talk in the next segment about the temptations of life on the road. It occurs to me you are a huge music fan, a kind of notorious <laughs> deadhead. Is staying sober a challenge in that environment? You know, it, it certainly can be, especially when you first get clean. And I think that was one of the things that held a lot of people back. Like you uh, you think to yourself, how can I ever be live sober? How can I get through uh, the Super Bowl sober? How can mm. I get through this birthday party sober? Or in my case, I went to a lot of dead shows, a lot of fish shows. How can I possibly, I mean, the, the drug culture at these shows w- was tremendous, right? How can I possibly do it? But you find that uh, through recovery and through support, right, you go with other friends who are music lovers in recovery. That's the number one thing. Uh. Through that, I find that I pay attention to music more. Music sounds so much better sober. And that's not just a line I'm saying on the radio. <laughs> like it's, I listen to jazz and I could hear the intricacies of, of what Monk is doing or what Coltrane is doing more than I ever did when I was getting high. Yeah, that's fascinating because I, I have people in my life in recovery and they have come to this realization that all of the things they thought they needed drugs for. Mm-hmm. They actually didn't. No. But they'd convinced themselves of this. Yeah. And, and that's such a, that is, that's where recovery is. And, you know, and they say all the time in the recovery rooms, don't leave until the miracle happens. And in my case, that was actually, you know, going to a Grateful Dead concert for the first time. And I broke down in tears one night. So when it all just hit me, it was about seven months into my recovery. And a song just started playing, and I just collapsed into my friend's arms. And it was my first real spiritual moment in recovery where I felt, this is it. You know, I don't have to be high for this. I can enjoy it. I mean, it's just That was your miracle, Vic. Yeah, and I think it can happen to anyone. I I really think that, like, what I tell people all the time is, you know, I understand what you're going through, and and I understand your suffering. Believe me, but if if you whatever you've gone through, I will see you and Matt and and raise you one. <laughs> okay, let's pick up the premiere episode of Back from Broken. This is as singer songwriter Anders Osborne has been struggling to overcome addiction and takes a big risk. Anders Osborne learned a lot in that residential rehab facility, and it was rough. The counselors told him he should probably spend about six months there before trying to resume his music career. But Anders did something pretty scary, maybe even crazy. He left rehab after just five weeks. I I need to work. I worked my whole life to play music. And so I just have to start showing people that I'm reliable and accountable and that I can do a good job. And then the money will go back and hopefully increase and it can be a good income. I had a house that I, or I still have that house, but I love this house. The reason why I left early or after just five weeks, I said, I have to go back to work. I have to save the house. And my wife says, I don't want to live with you. You, I I don't know if this is going to work. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Just give me one month to hit the road really hard. I'm not worth much right now, but... Let me go out there and see if I can save the house to get one month of uh, mortgage payment. And she said, all right, 
I'll do that. So I said, you don't have to stay with me. We can still separate. We can sell the house after that, but we'll own it. It'll be ours. It's really hard to understate how bold of a move this is. As Anders puts it, part of getting clean was learning to hand your decision-making over to counselors who gradually teach you how to make better decisions. Going back on tour early, surrounded by drugs and alcohol, was a massive decision for someone who's new to sobriety. You needed to work, but at the same time, you had to stay sober. Uh, what, what was that experience like? It was horrific, to be honest with you. I mean, at the first run we did, the first two weeks on the road there, it was like, you know, a heroin addict drummer and my old dealer was my road manager and the bass player was a big weed head. And were, th- were they still using when, when you were? Yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, but, you know, everybody was helpful. They were trying, but I just couldn't, find any relief and I would have people throw me eight balls on stage or find me before the show and slap some drugs and you know bring a a beautiful bottle of something scotch or wine or something that constantly dropping off drugs and alcohol see if they could you know hook up a little party get us going so I had to fend that off when you would walk onto the stage you're oftentimes walking by a bar, right? People drinking at the bar. If you play 150 plus dates a year, you know, that's that's hanging out in the barbershop. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're there every single night. And going back on stage sober felt strange to Anders. He compared it to the feeling of throwing up. And he says it took him months to feel comfortable simply standing on stage during a performance, even though he'd been doing it for years. What about playing guitar itself? Did that take a while to kind of figure out, like just the chords, the fingering, everything? Yeah, a little bit, but it was more, rather than knowing how to do it, uh, that wasn't the hardest part. The worst part was knowing that I wasn't that good. So I started playing and I what came back was very limited. I realized okay. that a, a lot of it had been posturing. A lot of it had been, you know, uh, sort of an attitude. You wrote a song, Mind of a Junkie, and I'm just going to read off a few of the lyrics here. Um, I'm nervous, I'm sweaty. I hate to make amends Bunch of opinions I'm always on a fence Pissed off and sad When did you write that? Uh, first two, three months of recovery. And this was just what, your experience of, of being sober? Well, that was the early sobriety and the the connecting of, you know, trying to be sober and looking back at not being sober and, and also in sobriety in the beginning, you live in a mind that is, you know, it's it's not healthy at all. Yeah, I mean, it's heavy stuff. And I think as someone who, who remembers what early recovery it was like, you're in this tug of war between your former self and the person who you really want to be. Yep. I've been living in the mind of a junkie Thinking 
recovering addict who's trying to stay sober on tour, a club is like an obstacle course or a minefield, really. But then one night, two friends showed up at uh, one of Andrew's shows, and this moment changed everything. They came from one of his recovery groups just to support him. Two guys from AA asked me if they wanted me to come and just come sit with me. And I was a little, I don't know, confused. I said, what do you mean, come sit with me? I don't know. We just come sit with you while you play. I'm like, sure. So they show up and they sit uh, next to the stage on two chairs, these two burly guys, beautiful cats. And they just sat there. They didn't do anything. They just sat there. And I remember feeling like, I don't know, I felt felt accountable for doing a good job playing music. I'm supposed to do this. This is my job. And accountable for, and I'm sober. And I better be sober. And then I felt a little safer that someone that knows exactly everything about me and the addiction part of me better than anybody else, better than my family, they're here. They know exactly who I am. And that felt safe. Your buddies in rehab who decided to show up for the gig, that was a preview to something that you would eventually create. So a few years into being sober and performing and you know getting more comfortable with it, I thought, what if I would have had in the beginning some kind of network where I could have uh, sober people come out and they could be there, keep me company, and people like me, um, it probably would have been a lot easier to go back to work mm-hmm. and to feel comfortable. So we started Send Me a Friend Foundation, which is exactly that. It's a network nationwide. I don't have the exact number because it grows every day, but I'd say it's close to 5,000 people nationwide. And basically what we do is 30 minutes before performance time and 30 minutes after, we can send someone. You can request, uh, whether you're a sound engineer, lighting director, uh, roadie, musician, artist, superstar, or totally unfamous and you're playing on Bourbon Street, yeah. But you need help. We can send somebody that can come sit with you and they keep you company while you work. And that's it. It's just someone, a, a sober friend, just being present. Yeah. We're not going to meetings. We're not necessarily doing anything particularly to keep you sober, but we're there to keep you working. Because the hardest part is, you know, to be as broke as you usually are after you get clean. In my case, I, I mean, I couldn't, we couldn't buy food for the kids. We had no money. So I had to work. So I thought, you know, this could be a good way for music industry people to go back to work in a pretty sketchy uh, environment. And Anders has other plans for transforming the concert experience, not just for musicians in recovery, but for audience members trying to stay sober. He dreams of having a sober section at concerts that offer non-alcoholic beverages to help the audience members trying to stay clean feel like they're having a little more fun. These days, Anders says he lives a much healthier life. He runs four or five miles a day. He's been diagnosed as bipolar and received treatment for his mental health challenges. But he still has vivid memories of how much work it took to feel confident about his recovery. In fact, he wrote a song about it. I'm standing in a church 
nobody else sees I'm listening to a bird that sings like love, like love, like love I'm a huge fan of Buddha and the Blues Thank you I just think it's beautiful, I think it's your best work um, How does Buddha and the Blues relate to your recovery and where you are in life right now? The first, I don't know, four, five, six years in recovery, it's like you're backing away from a fire. You're constantly walking. You're facing this this danger over there, and you keep walking away from it. Like, I'm backing away, I'm backing away, but I'm keeping an eye on this thing. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, you have turned around. And that, for me, anyway, it's as if I had turned around, and I'm no longer backing away from it. I am now choosing where to go. It's a new direction, yeah. I sometimes think of what performers like you see when you're at the venue a lot of people partying smoking weed drinking have you become neutral to that yet yeah it's i don't see it too much um i don't know it's like i see the people more now i don't see the crowd i don't see the ambitious part of you know a lot of people came to see me i see us coming together i see individual people with their individual needs when I look out in the crowd. So what do you tell people who want to be sober but feel like the world around them is making it really rough? I think be very, very gentle with yourself. Be, take it nice and slow. Don't, don't beat yourself up over the use or non-use or what you should or should not do. And, and just start from that place of, of self-care and love. And then... I think very, very important, which I learned in the AA rooms, is people, places, and things. You have to start being harder on the people, places, and the things around you. Not yourself. Don't beat yourself up because you're beautiful. But look at the things you have chosen to represent you. If you have your five closest people and they're all heavy drinkers, then you're in the wrong company. There's nothing wrong with you or them. It's just this that's the wrong company for you if you want to get clean. Yeah. That's the key thing for me. It's people, places, and things. You have to make some adjustments. And then you'll see how vast all the possibilities are in your life. You have a choice uh, between feeling blue or um, serene. You get to choose. Anders Osborne continues to write, record, and tour. He lives with his wife and two kids who stuck with him through all of his struggles with addiction. And his Send Me a Friend network continues to grow. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. And if you're struggling with addiction, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Hi, this is Doug from Denver. And this is what happened in my recovery this week. Part of my recovery, a big part of my recovery, is giving back to the community. And we ran a toy drive where we were able to give over 700 gifts to folks. And it just really makes me feel good just to help other people that are in need. 
Hey, this is Hunter from Denver, Colorado, and this week I finished my first uh, semester of grad school. Uh, this gives me hope because I never thought I'd have a college degree, much less have the opportunity to, you know, go to grad school and do these things um, to to continue to improve my life. We'd love to hear how you're doing in your recovery, and we might share it on this podcast. Record a voice memo or MP3 and send it to Vic at backfrombroken.org. Back from Broken, the new podcast about recovery, conceived of and hosted by CPR's Vic Vela, our weekend edition host, who proudly introduces himself as a recovering drug addict. And Vic, there are some laugh-out-loud funny (laughs) moments in this episode. What role has humor played in your recovery? A a huge role. I can't uh, sell it enough. Um, And this is not a—I'm not uh, being— using hyperbole here, Ryan, I would not be alive today if I didn't have a sense of humor. Because to be able to go back and talk about the things that used to cause me pain and talk about the things I couldn't talk about before, now I'm so used to talking about those stories, I could laugh. And to get to a point where you can't talk about something at all because it's so painful Mm. to now you're laughing about it is a beautiful place to be. It is, right, a demonstration of how far you've come. We've been listening to the premiere of Back From Broken, but this is fascinating to me. Even before it launched, you were soliciting feedback. Yeah, you know, um, I'm uh, pretty uh, vocal on Twitter and and Facebook and, uh, you know, just telling my own story and and talking about recovery and addiction in a really honest way. Uh, That's the only way I can talk about these things. We can't sugarcoat them. And every time I post something about either myself or maybe someone I'm sponsoring who hit a recovery milestone, you should see my DMs and emails like strangers reaching out. Hey, Vic, just letting you know, um, I just checked into rehab and uh, thank you for being a source of inspiration. Hey, just letting you know, my uncle just celebrated seven days sober. And um, I just, you know, for someone as a complete stranger to take time out of their day to tell me that is an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing when you hear that you've moved someone. But you know what? I did that because I knew that's what I needed. When I was early in recovery, I needed to hear these stories of hope. And so have these folks been helping shape the podcast? Yeah. And, you know, we even have a, an advisory group that uh, gave uh, this a first listen, uh, and they shed their insights on, uh, on the making of the, of the podcast. So we can say that not only is the host in recovery, uh, it was shaped by people in recovery. Uh. What other stories do you hope to tell in this podcast? Because my understanding is that the idea of recovery is not limited to just drugs and alcohol. That's exactly right. Uh, we, any, anything that causes us suffering, PTSD, uh, depression, bipolar disorder, right? Gambling is a big problem for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, loss, anything that really causes us pain, we're going to really talk about in an open and honest way. Because I'm telling you, the more we talk about this stuff, the less scarier it seems, and we can get better. Vic, thanks so much for sharing the first episode with us and lifting the veil a bit on how it was put together. Thank you so much, Ryan. Vic Vela, he is the host of Back From Broken, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. 
The first season is out now. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mm-hmm.